Cree, home to eukaryotes which wrap their DNA in membrane-bound cell nuclei, would rule biology classrooms for decades. Yet, his system is based only, partly, on evolutionary relationships. Whitaker crowned his tree of life with three kingdoms of primary multicellular eukaryotes, sorted in large part by nutritional style. Plants, capturing light energy, fungi, absorbing nutrients by contact, and animals, ingesting their food. He recognized a fourth kingdom of eukaryotes, the protista. It was a hodgepodge of single-celled organisms, differing in forms and lifestyles, but lumped together largely for convenience. He said as much, acknowledging that none of the classification systems he discussed can be wholly satisfactory. Today, many scientists hope for biological categories that consist of a single ancestral lineage and all its evolutionary descendants. A tree of life built this way actually changes how you interpret a lot of stuff, Keeling says. Much of biology rests on information gleaned from one organism and hypothesized to be true for its close kin. Identifying relatives is important. If you've got the tree wrong, then you could be wrong about a lot of things, he says. The challenge of getting that tree right looms sequoia high, since so much of the diversity of life lies in complex microbes still unknown to science. Out of about 150,000 kinds of marine plankton detected during the Terra Oceans expeditions, as reported May 22nd in Science, researchers could genetically identify about a third only as some eukaryote. They couldn't place them in any known group. The early attempts to see what genetics could say about the tree of life seemed to work beautifully. But science doesn't go in a linear path, says Andrew Roger of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, who entered the field during the tumultuous 1990s. Those first genetics-based trees of life for eukaryotes were built by comparing variations in the gene for small subunit ribosomal RNA across species. The result looked believable with plants, animals, and fungi on big branches at the top. Lower down in the zone for more ancient branches sprouted some oddball parasites such as Giardia, the bane of hikers who drink untreated water, sexually transmitted trichomonas and tiny microsporidia, which attack many animals. Researchers had begun to wonder if these bizarre parasites and their relatives could be living relics of an early, pivotal time in eukaryote history. The organisms had no obvious mitochondria, the organelles that serve as the cell's power stations. Perhaps the parasites had never had any mitochondria, Thomas Cavalier-Smith of the University of Oxford suggested in 1983. This notion played off the idea championed by maverick biologist Lynn Margulis at Boston University in 1970 in The Origin of Eukaryotic Cells. She suggested that mitochondria came from a free-living microbe that some ancestor of eukaryotes had swallowed and put to work. Perhaps the parasites were relics from before the big swallow. To use these select parasites as glimpses of life before mitochondria would be really, really interesting, says Dalhousie biologist Alastair Simpson. 
it was a lovely hypothesis, but then, he says, it all went to hell. One problem came when researchers expanded their analyses to look at more than one gene. Unexpectedly, says Roger, we had different genes saying different things. The pivotal unraveling of the parasites as relics hypothesis had a special zing for Roger. He was in the middle of a Ph.D. project based on the assumption that the parasites came from pre-mitochondrial times. It was one of those cases when you're trying to work on the carpet that's being pulled out from under you, he says. I thought it was pretty exciting. Yes, he said exciting. That view of eukaryote evolution based on analysis of a single gene was in textbooks, and it was what many people had made their careers on, he says. It seemed like if it was going to fail, it was going to be something big. He and his lab mates were going to be in on it.